from KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, Roxanne Gay joins us, the author of An Untamed State, the short story collection Difficult Women, and the memoir Hunger, has compiled an anthology of works by Audre Lorde. In the introduction, Gay calls Lorde an exemplar of public intellectualism who is as relevant in this century as she was in the last. We'll talk with Gay about Lorde's poetry and prose on race, queer identity, feminism, and justice, as well as other projects Gay's been working on. Join us after this news. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. In Roxanne Gay's essay introducing the selected works of Audre Lorde, she says that Lorde was the first to demonstrate to her that, quote, a writer could be intensely concerned with the inner and outer lives of black queer women, that our experiences could be the center instead of relegated to the periphery. Lord, a self-described black lesbian mother warrior poet, shaped our understanding of race, queer identity, intersectional feminism, and illness. She died in 1992 after she was diagnosed with breast cancer. Roxane Gay joins us to talk about assembling this new collection of Lord's work that includes a dozen essays and more than 60 of Lord's poems. Welcome back to Forum, Roxane Gay. Thank you for having me, Mina. It's a real pleasure to be here. How did you approach choosing works by Audre Lorde for a new collection? I mean, this is a writer who you described as a towering figure in your life. Yes, it was really challenging. I spent about a year reading through her body of work, and her body of work is extensive. And so I had to make really difficult choices, but I chose the pieces that felt the most powerful, the most intimate, that spoke well to the moment that we're presently in. And now you have this collection of her work. And you've written that she was the first writer who lived and loved the way I did. That was in your introduction. Could you talk a little bit about what she meant to you? For sure. You know, when you are a Black queer woman, especially 30 years ago, Um, there wasn't a lot of representation that reflected anything about who I am and how I love. And so when I first came upon her work in my 20s, and I don't even remember when I first read her, but I know it was in my 20s, and then I started to read her more in graduate school, I was just astonished that she wrote so openly about being a Black lesbian, about sexual desire, uh, about anger, and it was truly foundational for me and has influenced everything I've done since. When you were going through her work, as you say, a lot of work that she that she did, did you make any discoveries that, that surprised you or, or even reshaped your thinking about this present moment? You know, I don't know that I had discoveries. Instead, what I had was the unfortunate realization that she would be writing very similar essays today mm-hmm. about the state of the world, about inaction, about power. And that was really chilling because, you know, she was writing in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s. 
And you would hope that we have made some progress since then. And of course we have. I think it's always important to acknowledge progress. But there are so many ways in which we have not made progress and where we have, frankly, regressed. And that's a real problem. I mean, when I was rereading the transformation of silence into language and action, it was pretty incredible to to read it and see just how much so little has changed, as you said. And the other thing that was interesting about reading that essay is I feel like it's quoted a lot, but that there were insights in there that and and sentences and paragraphs in there that felt really complicated and nuanced around this question of silence. Um, you had mentioned that that uh, she one of the the lines that really got you was the quote: "While we wait in silence for that final luxury of fearlessness, the weight of that silence will choke us." And it, I couldn't help but think about you, Roxanne Gay, because I consider you like the expert of the clapback <laughs> and. <laughs> Just also, you were saying there's never a perfect time to speak up. And I'm wondering if that did have an influence on you and your ability to, to speak. Well, certainly, you know, I find it very challenging to speak, which always surprises people. Uh, it, it, I'm actually really shy in my day to day life. And uh, it's really challenging for me to decide, OK, I'm going to make a stand here because I never want to upset anyone. But in my writing, I, I'm terrified, but I do it anyway. And I do often think of all of the Black women who came before me who knew that we can't afford silence. And certainly in the transformation of silence into language and action, Lord is reminding us that silence is a luxury that very few of us can actually afford. And when we are silent, we're complicit in the things that we don't speak against. And that just always helps me to get over myself and to get over or at least manage my fears. Um, is there a passage in that essay that you would like to read? Yes, absolutely. And so this is just a very brief excerpt from the transformation of silence into language and action. What are the words you do not yet have? What do you need to say? What are the tyrannies you swallow day by day and attempt to make your own until you will sicken and die of them still in silence? Perhaps for some of you here today, I am the face of one of your fears because I am a woman, because I am black, because I am a lesbian, because I am myself, a black woman, warrior, poet doing my work. Come to ask you, are you doing yours? And of course I am afraid because the transformation of silence into language and action is an act of self-revelation. And that always seems fraught with danger. But my daughter, when I told her of our topic and my difficulty with it said, tell them about how you're never really a whole person if you remain silent, because there's always that one little piece inside you that wants to be spoken out. And if you keep ignoring it, it gets madder and madder and hotter and hotter and if you don't speak it out one day, it will, just, it will just up and punch you in the mouth from the inside. In the cause of silence, each of us draws the face of her own fear, fear of contempt, of censure, or some judgment, or recognition of challenge, of annihilation. But most of all, I think we fear the visibility without which we cannot truly live. 
Within this country, where racial difference creates a constant, if unspoken, distortion of vision, Black women have, on one hand, always been highly visible, and so, on the other hand, have been rendered invisible through the depersonalization of racism. Even within the women's movement, we have had to fight, and still do, for that very visibility, which also renders us most vulnerable, our Blackness. For to survive in the mouth of this dragon we call America, we have had to learn this first and most vital lesson, that we were never meant to survive, not as human beings, and neither were most of you here today, Black or not. And that visibility which makes us most vulnerable is that which also is the source of our greatest strength. Because the machine will try to grind you into dust anyway, whether or not we speak. We can sit in our corners, mute forever, while our sisters and ourselves are wasted, while our children are distorted and destroyed, while our earth is poisoned. We can sit in our safe corners, mute as bottles, and we will still be no less afraid. And we will still be no less afraid. Roxanne Gay is reading from uh, a collection of selected works by Audre Lorde that she edited and also wrote the introduction for. And thanks so much for reading that that one. That was one that I had had really liked, just because, you know, I think women are celebrated for their silence still in this culture to some extent, and it has always felt like a bit of a conspiracy to me. But the other reason that I, I liked it is because I remember the last time we talked, it was about your memoir, Hunger. And I was wondering if that was sort of one place of sort of radical truth telling for you uh, of breaking of breaking your silence to some extent. Oh, absolutely. Hunger, and I'm 100% sure we talked about this, was a book I was terrified to write. And I dragged my heels for quite a long time because it's really challenging to write about the body you're living in. And at the same time, I understood that until I wrote about fatness the way only I can, uh, I wasn't going to see the kind of dis discourse about fatness in the world that I wanted to see. And so it was a real challenge to find the gumption, the courage to do that writing while also just being so terrified and so concerned with what people would think and feeling so very vulnerable because I was still living in the body I was writing about. But, you know, fat discourse is so messed up. And I think it's just so crucial to to talk about these truths because everyone, you know, lives in a different kind of body that has a story. So yeah. I absolutely drew upon the importance of not being silent. The other piece of this that I was struck by was the visibility um, that she talks about in the invisibility of racism. But there is so much in her work that I feel like is all about being visible, especially when mm -hmm. she was diagnosed with breast cancer. And I I know you included quite a bit from the cancer journals and a burst of light. And I was wondering if her writings on cancer gave you insight into your own mother's experience with lung cancer? You know, it did. I've been really trying to be the best kind of support I can. Um, my mom has stage four lung cancer and it has metastasized. And it was really unexpected because she's asymptomatic and still is, but we know that her cancer is fairly advanced. And, you know, we have a lot of strange cultural rhetoric around cancer about warriors and, you know, he, you know, near cancer people, people, cancer patients are heroes. And I think that's all true, 
But I also know that in the moment when you're living in a body that's failing you, you know, maybe you don't want to hear that. Maybe you just want to hear the truth of what it means to live in a sick body while also recognizing that living in a sick body is not the entirety of who you are. And so one of the things I admired about Audre Lorde in the cancer journals and in her writing around cancer is that she wrote about the material reality of being sick and she didn't glamorize or valorize the experience. And I, I definitely draw a lot of consolation from that as I try not to be too rah, rah, rah with my mom. And just like, you know, sometimes she's like, I'm done. I'm not doing this anymore. And I just think you're 70 years old. You're very much going to continue with treatment. And, and she's well, she's doing well, all things considered. But uh, I always try to remind myself that I have to step back. Hmm. Well, I'm glad to hear that she's doing well. We're talking about the life and work of writer and activist Audre Lorde with Roxane Gay. What are your questions for Roxane Gay? And has the life and work of Audre Lorde influenced you in some way? If so, how? Give us a call, 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. Or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. More after the break. I'm Mina Kim. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about the work and the life of writer and activist Audre Lorde with Roxane Gay, whose books include An Untamed State, Difficult Women, Hunger, and Bad Feminist. She edited and wrote the introduction for a new anthology titled The Selected Works of Audre Lorde. She's also an associate professor at Purdue University and a contributing opinion writer for The New York Times. And you can join the conversation by calling 866-733-6786 or getting in touch with us on Twitter and Facebook at KQED Forum or by emailing your questions to forum at kqed.org. One of the essays that I was struck by was um, the one titled Sexism, an American Disease in Blackface. And in it, she talks about quite a bit about the results of women hating in the black community as tragedies that that diminish all black people. And I was curious, sort of what you thought she was saying there and why you wanted to include this particular essay. Well, you know, we talk a lot about intersectionality these days, as we should, but before it had that name, writers and thinkers like Audre Lorde were embodying intersectionality. And I saw that essay as a precursor to Kimberly Crenshaw's work. Mm. And I thought it was really important to see that although our understanding of certain ideas may be new, the ideas themselves rarely are. Well, I want to invite Lynn from Sausalito to join the conversation. Lynn, thanks so much for calling. Well, thank you for doing this show. Uh, I just wanted to say that in the mid-1970s, I was the coordinator of the Minnesota Poets in the Schools, and we had some extra money to bring in uh, other writers. And two of our young poets at the time, Marisha Chamberlain and Mary Carr, said, oh my gosh, let's ask Audrey Lord." And she came and she gave a wonderful reading and she was funny and warm and gracious. And I just think she has a lot to say to all people. And the rallying cry of, I am deliberate, 
and afraid of nothing has definitely stayed with me and I think with a lot of other people. So thank you, Roxanne, for carrying this banner on. Oh, you're more than welcome. And thank you for sharing that story. I mean, I I feel like it really does also get at the fact that she never did seem to forget about the collective, right? She, the way that everything, as you said, intersects with each other, but also just to think of others. <laughs> I don't know why that seems so rare these days, but it kind of does. <laughs> it does. And I think that's really heartbreaking that being community oriented and considering that none of us are an island unto ourselves, um, you know, just having some basic consideration for other people. It shouldn't feel rare, but increasingly it is. And I always think it's good to to be reminded that we are part of a collective, whether we like it or not. Well, you wrote, and this is also something that struck me in your um, introductory essay, we live in a very fractured time, one where difference has been weaponized, demonized, and here discourse demands allegiance to extremes instead of nuanced points of view. What were you referring to there? You know, I'm referring to just really everything we've seen, I would say, especially since 2016, but it goes further back than that. But this year in particular, I think we have seen a lot of calcification in terms of ideology and a lot of reluctance to entertain other points of view. And I'm not talking about racism because racism is not an opinion. Uh, It's just, you know, let's look at the left, for example, people have really dug their heels in about what they believe in. And there are a lot of people who don't feel like we can compromise, even though we have very similar politics. And that's really troubling to me because we know that we need to start to get radical and create some real change in in the world. And yet we can't even have civil conversations amongst ourselves. Mm. That's a real problem. And it's a little terrifying because When we look at what we're up against in November with Donald Trump, who absolutely has to be removed from office, uh, you know, that we can't even get on the same page about that um, is a, it worries me a great deal. And I am trying to do everything in my power to remind myself and anyone who might read my work that we're not going to get to where we need to get for with, you know, Medicare for all and universal basic income and all of these really great ideas, police defunding, if we don't work together. Uh, And I don't mean that in a Pollyanna way. I mean that in a realistic way. I mean, so are you referring to to some extent, you know, there was that whole Harper's letter that came out and (laughs) they were calling out the the left for being sort of illiberal, I guess, to Mm -hmm. some extent, but then at the same time, um, well, anyway, I don't know what was your reaction to that and if that's something that you were thinking about. Uh, No, Um, I thought that letter was ridiculous. And I think those people should be embarrassed to sign their names to it. Uh, And and so many people I actually like and respect sign that letter. And I just think, wow, it's not that the left is a liberal. I think it's that there is so much at stake that people think everything is at stake. I can't afford to consider other points of view. I can't afford to relent. And I don't know how we get past that, but uh, I do know that we need to at least be able to talk about it and try. And I do know that we need to stop having these very sort of flimsy conversations about things like cancel culture, which is not a thing. 
It's actually consequence culture and consequences are, are good. Um, and yeah, we just, we keep having sort of these one-on-one conversations when we need to be having graduate seminar conversations. Yeah. And then when you talk about sort of coming together, especially in an election year, I mean, what do you think about feeling feeling also like you you couldn't support, say, Joe Biden because he yeah. doesn't reflect the progressive ideals that another candidate that you supported did, right? For example, Bernie right. Sanders or Elizabeth Warren. You know, I, I struggled to wrap my mind around a Joe Biden presidency because unlike 2016, we actually had a very robust Democratic field this year. And even though Bernie Sanders wasn't my guy, I would have happily voted for him in good conscience. And I was certainly, I, I endorsed Elizabeth Warren and I thought she was the best candidate. I uh, contributed to Kamala Harris's campaign because I think even though I have some issues with her prosecutorial record, I, I think she would do a great job. Uh, Joe Biden just was never in my in my thinking, uh-huh. but he's the kid, he's the guy for better or worse. And I think there are a lot of political reasons why he's the guy. And I understand that. I understand that in general, we are actually a centrist country. And to begin to get to a more radical politic, we have to, you know, we're not going to go from a Donald Trump, I think, to a Bernie Sanders in any sort of smooth way. But I do think it's less of a leap to go from a Donald Trump to a Joe Biden for a lot of people, not progressive voters, but for um, middle of the road centrists and independents. And unfortunately, I think a lot of the election might be in their hands. Um, So I struggled and I understand why many people struggle. There are so many reasons, but you know what? We have to suck it up. We just do. He is the guy and I am not going to take anything for granted the way I did in 2016. And I am going to do everything in my power to make sure that a Biden-Harris ticket is uh, the one at the top at the end of uh, November 3rd. And that gives me a sense of what a conversation beyond a 101 conversation would be like when we're mm-hmm. talking about trying to to grapple with a Biden nominee, um, if that is what you are doing, um, mm-hmm. listeners who are. But I wonder what you think Audrey Lord would say to that situation. Yeah, that's a great question. I think Audre Lorde would, I don't, I can't, I don't dare speak for Audre Lorde, but sure. I don't think she would be happy about the choice that we're facing. I do think that like most black women, she understands that we need to, as my friend Tressie McMillan Cottom says, vote like a poor black woman's life depends on it. And I, I do believe she would have, like we've talked about, the greater good in, in, in mind. But I also think that she would have some very fiery words to say about how we let it get down to this choice. And uh, I think that a lot of people would be held to account for it. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I do think she would have a lot to say whether she agreed with it or not. You know, one of the <laughs> sort of the, the aspects of her writing that I think are are really interesting to think about are the extent to which I guess what I'm remembering is that I studied her in my feminist theory class. And I felt like for me, she really clarified the difference between a reformer and a revolutionary. Mm-hmm. And I remember, you know, talking to my professor about how do revolutionary acts or revolutionary ideas actually become reality. And 
I was reading your essay, How We Save Ourselves. I think it was about three months ago, and I think it was in this essay. But here you mention really being skeptical about the whole idea of defunding and abolishing the police. Yes. Can you talk about, and, and now you see it as more of, well, I don't, I don't want to put words in your mouth. Like, how do you see it now, and what contributed to that change? You know, I, before... And I've been accused of being a centrist before, and I don't think that's inaccurate. I, you know, I'm a Libra. I'm from Nebraska, so <laughs> it's certainly taking <laughs> it's me a long compromising. Time. Yeah, you know, I'm always like, oh, you know, like let's look at the middle. But the older I get, and frankly, the more comfortable I get, the more I understand that everyone deserves to live with a certain level of comfort, peace, and safety. And I've always known that, but you just start to realize it more and realize how few people actually do get that privilege. And after Jacob, uh, just after Jacob Blake, I, I'm not Jacob Blake, even though, I mean, I can add to the list. After George Floyd, I, something broke in me. That was just the last straw. And watching that video, which I did not want to watch, but ended up do, doing and, and seeing eight and a half, almost nine minutes of a man pleading for his life and then dying while people looked and the officer knew that he was being watched and knew that there would be no consequences. I just realized you can't reform a system that enables this behavior. You can't reform a system where Breonna Taylor's killers are still walking free, where Jacob Blake is shot in the back seven times. Um, and those are just from the past four or five months. It's too much. And so we need to come up with something better. And yes, it's overwhelming to imagine what defunding the police or abolishing the police looks like. But what's more overwhelming is being a Black person wondering, is today the day that police are going to murder me? So uh, I'm, I'm on board with abolition and really rethinking what law enforcement might look like and really replacing police officers in many instances with social service employees who are better equipped to deal with certain situations. And, you know, I don't know that we've even come up with the best picture of what reform look, I'm not reform, what abolition and defunding looks like, but we can get there and we will. Well, Roz writes, in the early 1980s, I was privileged to attend Earlham College, where I had a professor, Barbara Caruso, who made sure there were strong lesbian voices among speakers at the school. Audre Lorde was unforgettable. Her gift as a reader was a wake-up and a connector. My question is, it's a struggle to convey to progressives that the country is center. I've been preaching this sermon to potential non-voters. How do we inspire people not to sit out? <laughs> That's the question. I mean... You know, as we've seen efforts intensify as we head into the last 49 days of campaigning, uh, you know, there's this myth that if we reach the right number of Republicans, everything is going to be okay. But I don't care about reaching conservatives in any way, shape or form. We need to reach progressives who want to sit out and we need to reach apathetic voters who think uh, it doesn't matter what I do. And I think that we remind them what's at stake and you know, some people are just unreachable, but I still think we've got to try. We have to talk about everything that hangs in the balance if Donald Trump is reelected, uh, because it's going to be a horror show if he's reelected. And he has a really good chance of being reelected, which 
it does not speak well to this country. This listener writes in an essay for the online magazine Zora, activist Charlene Carruthers wrote, Lord's work challenges me to become more certain of my personal responsibility to a collective struggle for liberation. She beckons me to see myself as a complex person who deserves care as a revolutionary act. She tells me that as a woman, I am powerful and dangerous. This listener asks, what are your thoughts on her reflection, particularly about care as a revolutionary act? I think care is a revolutionary act. I think that we tend to be very tribal as people and we tend to care about those who are closest to us and not think beyond that. And if we just maybe cared about one another more uh, and understood what care can look like and should look like, uh, the world would be a lot better. And I don't mean that in a Pollyanna way again, there's this group of young people in Los Angeles right now. And I, I know of them because my assistant, Caitlin, who's incredible, is part of this group. And they have taken it upon themselves to feed uh, the unhoused community at Echo Park Lake. And also they also do so at MacArthur Park every weekend. These are people who don't have a lot of money and yet they give and they give and they give and make sure that this community is being fed and that they have tents and blankets and sleeping bags and clean water. And it's because they care. Nobody asked them to do it. They saw that the Los Angeles government um, led by Garcetti wasn't doing this work and they did it themselves. And uh, if we would all just do that, like realize that you don't have to change the world, but feed one person. Uh, and see what happens. Um, it just, every day I think about them and I support them as best I can um, with money. And I would also happily go and feed people and just sort of work the food line. I don't, I'll do whatever. Um, but they have just, it's just humbling to see like what these young people are doing and how much better the play, you know, the world would be if, everyone just took it upon themselves to help one other person. And Audre Lorde talks about that, like that we have to change through care. It's not going to happen through indifference. And I think it's also getting at this question of self-care too. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I mean, how are you during this pandemic? <laughs> I, I know you've talked about how therapeutic baking has been, for example, in all of this, but yeah, uh, yeah I mean, how do you exercise self-care if you want to share? <laughs> You know, I'm not really great at self-care. Uh, I'm sort of part of the generation that missed that. But <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm Gen X and we're just like, whatever, so everything is terrible. You guys all suck. Um, but I am trying to, I am trying to remind myself that I can't take the entire world on my shoulders all day, every day, which is very hard for me as a workaholic. Um, it's challenging, but I do try to remind myself of that. And I do try to allow myself to step away. And I'm doing that more and more, especially with regard to social media, mm. because I find that it's incredibly toxic. I also um, don't watch 24 hour news if I can help it because it's too much. We don't need to be informed 24 hours a day. And I personally don't need to be informed 24 hours a day. I feel like I have a really good handle on what's going on in the world without watching CNN all the time. 
We're talking about Roxanne Gay. Uh, we're talking with Roxanne Gay about Audrey Lord and also about her. So if you have questions for Roxanne Gay about what she's doing these days, she has a lot of projects going on. And also, if you want to reflect on the life and work of, of Audrey Lord and how Audrey Lord influenced or inspired you in some way, or if you just have questions about Lord, give us a call 866-733-6786. You can also reach us on Twitter and Facebook at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. More after the break. I'm Nina Kim. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking with Roxanne Gay this hour about assembling the selected works of Audre Lorde. And we'll talk with her about some other projects that she's been working on. Gay is a New York Times contributing op-ed writer. She wrote Bad Feminist Essays and Hunger, a memoir, among several other books. And she edited the Best American Short Stories of 2018. Gay has put together a collection of Audre Lorde's prose and poems on race, injustice, feminism, and queer identity. And if you want to join the conversation, 866-733-678. Six is the number to call. You can also reach us on Twitter and Facebook. You can also email us, forum at kqed.org. Uh, in terms of other projects, you know, I was actually surprised to hear that you are now the New York Times work friend, that you are giving advice about work and about what happens at the office and office and, and those kinds of dynamics. And I never knew you liked giving advice so much. <laughs> you know, I, I do, and like most people enjoy giving advice. Um, and when the opportunity came my way, I thought, well, well, A, I lost all my income because of COVID. <laughs> so just being honest, like I needed the job. And also it, I love giving advice. And I thought it would be interesting to try my hand at doing it. And I had very big shoes to fill because Katie Weaver was the previous work friend and mm-hmm. she's incredibly smart and hilarious. And so I knew I couldn't replicate what she did. She just had this real wit and this snark. Um, And so I decided to just answer the questions as sincerely as possible, but in the way that only I can. And it's been a really fun adventure so far. Yeah, like what have you learned through the process of giving advice to people about their incompetent bosses or other things? I have learned that there are a lot of terrible bosses in this world, and there are a lot of people who are miserable at work, who are lost and don't know if they're on the right path. And I think a lot of people take jobs because they know they need them, and they they take jobs instead of trying to develop a career. And we do what we have to. I have spent many a year in the trenches doing everything from dishwashing to telemarketing. So I get it. And uh, I just... So many people are so very unhappy and I read their questions and think, oh my God, I wish I could tell you something other than you need to find a new job. (laughs) What are you most often asked for advice on with regards to writing? I know you're asked a lot about the writing craft. I think the main question I'm asked is what is your writing process? Mm. And I think what people want to hear is that here is a five-step process that you can replicate and therefore write the book of your dreams. And my process is so very haphazard, but I try to offer what I can. Uh, And the other uh, question I get asked a lot is, you know, how do I get published? And that's a totally reasonable question. Hmm. Uh, And I hope that I can answer it as well as possible every time. (laughs) Well, let me go to Peter in Berkeley. Hi, Peter. Join us. 
Hi. I uh, just was amazed by tuning in the radio about uh, 10 minutes ago, and this woman uh, that I didn't know was saying all the things that I think, just like bang, bang, bang. <laughs> and uh, it was really impressive, uh, starting with the uh, got to do, remember 2016 and got to do everything we can to elect Joe Biden. And uh, as far as self-care goes, I depend on transcendental meditation twice a day. And I don't know how people function in normal times without it. And uh, and I just highly, highly recommend it. It's really been terrific for 50 years. And it keeps on going. Well, <laughs> so that's one thing. Well, um, yeah. Was there something else you wanted to say? Whoever is right in front of me, because... I think that's the only thing you can do when it comes to personally helping others. Just do what you can do that's right there in front of you. And finally, I'm author and have been for many years. I'm either ashamed to say or proud to say of a, of a declaration and pledge series for, for our highest civic ideals. And the idea is to wake up in every citizen the feeling that, that collectively— we can make a great world. We can imagine, just like John Glennon said, we can imagine an ideal society, but we have a lot of duties uh, that go along with love and citizenship. And what are those duties? And kind of trying to enumerate them. So there's three things that I've found. And thank you for being who you are, Roxane Gay. Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate that. Thanks, Peter. Let me go next to Elston in Oakland. Hi, Elston you thanks for taking my call sure go right ahead and, and i i pose a question for for the uh, the visitor to your show why as a as a 55 year old black man why is it our job meaning speaking for the black collective to get john donald trump out of office why, why is that our job because joe biden with his terrible history with uh, anything that he's done for black people. No, no one is speaking about anything they're going to do for black people as a, as an individual group. No one, and they won't dare to speak about reparations. Kamala Harris, she, she, she won't let that word come out of her mouth. Why is it our job to get Donald Trump? He's a terrible president. I would never support him. He's a, he's a, he's not intelligent enough for, for my liking to even be the president. He's a, he's a disgrace to us as a country. However, why is it our job to get him out of there? Why should yeah. we give our vote to someone who's promising us nothing? Elston, yeah. thanks. That's a great question, Elston. And I totally understand where you're coming from. It's, it's not our job. Really, it isn't. But it is our job as human beings and as citizens to vote. Uh, so many people died and fought for our right to vote. And to do nothing with that right is unacceptable. You can be angry, you can acknowledge the failures of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, but it is still upon you, not as a black man, but as a man to vote and do something about the current political climate. It is not going to change under Donald Trump. That's for sure. It has at least the potential to change under Joe Biden. And what we get to do is hold his administration accountable and make sure that if they have not put the word reparations in their mouths yet, that they do. And I think that we can reach a Biden-Harris administration with far more likelihood of success than we will ever reach a Trump-Pence uh, administration. 
And so it is not our responsibility to save this country from itself, but it is our responsibility to save ourselves and our individual communities. And I wish we had a different choice, but I'm not gonna sit at home angry when I have ne a black nephew walking around in this world and brothers and, and myself uh, and parents who need health care, you know, I'm not going to do it. Well, Robert writes, what would you say to so-called progressive voters who consider sitting out the election? An older African-American woman in North Carolina recently said, if you don't vote, it has a negative impact on your neighbors and me. Your sitting out is not a solitary act, but a negative gesture hurting others. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you have anything you want to add to that or I can move on. Oh, I, I, I agree. It's just this idea that doing nothing will teach them and get them to maybe give us something. That's not how it works. I wish it was. But uh, I think that we can both hold them accountable and tell them about themselves and vote. And that's the choice that I am making. Mary in Moss Beach, join us. Hi, Mary. Um, so I will not mention the candidate's name, but I'm currently working with a candidate to help her get elected. And she has a very strong background in civil rights. She was actually marched uh, with James Meredith in the March of, um, Against Fear. She was in the audience and heard Stokely Carmichael preach black power for the first time. She heard Martin Luther King uh, when he, you know, gave some of his famous speeches and she was at the nomination when um, JFK received the Democratic National Convention nomination. And all these civil rights and protests, I mean, she stuck her neck out in the face and face down police brutality. And what I've, is interesting to me is I've been looking at the data of some responses. The responses, I very positive responses I'm getting back is that they're women aged 18 to 45, they first time register to vote in 2020, Democratic, and they are coming back with amazingly positive responses in support of this candidate. So what I'm hoping is that there's something brewing, that there are people who are starting to listen to our civil rights activists who were there in the very beginning when so many horrible things were going on in the 60s, people are starting to pay more attention and hoping to elect candidates, even in small offices with these backgrounds. I'm not sure if what I'm saying is, is gelled or makes sense, but anyway, I'm finding this all very, very positive, and I want to thank you uh, for speaking. Bye -bye. Well, thanks, Mary. It sounds like it's it's giving you hope, uh, which yes, is so important yes. in these times, I think. I mean, Leona tweets, Audrey Lord and Roxanne Gay, through their bodies of work, help me explore who I am and how I fit within the world we live in. I'm defined by intersectionality and empowered by it as well. Thank you for this segment. Um, Roxanne, one of the things that you wrote was that in Lord's body of work, we see her defying this type of the dominant culture as the default, that idea that she should only write about her oppression, but while doing so, she never abandons her subject position. I think this is really hard to do. I, I was wondering if you had any thoughts about how and where you saw this. You know, it's really hard to do. And 
I think a lot of marginalized writers come up against this idea that the only thing that we have to, to sell through our writing is oppression. And what I admire about Lord is that she never denies that she's a black lesbian, but she writes about joy. She writes about sex. She writes about love. She writes about being an academic and scholar. She writes about the challenges and oppression she faced. She writes about all of it. And she is a, a whole person. And you see that in almost everything she does. And when she, you know, wrote Zami, mm-hmm. uh, I love that she decided to create a genre because she wasn't finding what she needed in existing genres of, of the time. And, uh, you know, just seeing her do things like that um, really it just guides me and it reminds me that I am not only going to write about the struggles of the world and the problems that we're facing in the world. Uh, I, I'm also going to write about Channing Tatum's neck and, <laughs> uh, you know, other things. <laughs> yeah. Em- embody the fullness of, of who we are. Right. Mm-hmm. And with Zami, you know, just to remind audiences, it was, I mean, I guess, it was categorized sort of as an autobiography to some extent, but it was, it also contained mythology and history and various other things to be able to fully, for her to fully, I think, inhabit the space with everything that she was. But you also mentioned, you know, that she wrote about her sexuality and about sex. And I couldn't help but remembering when we talked about, um, you know, how at one point, I think you were like a phone sex operator, but you also wrote, or and, and correct me if my memory is is wrong of this, but also that you wrote a lot about sex and really explored what I think she talks about when I was reading some of the essays in terms of erotica as a source of power and women's you know sensuality and sexuality and and really engaging with it as in some ways a revolutionary act as well. Oh, for sure. Uh, a lot of my early writing was erotica. I have an entire body of work that nobody really knows about <laughs> that was erotica. And uh, one of the essays I knew early on that I was going to include was Uses of the Erotic, The Erotic is Power. And I love that essay. And I come back to it time and time again, because she makes it clear that it's not accidental that her work is erotic. She's writing about sex and eroticism as a choice. And she sees power in that choice and um, she's incredible. And that, you know, like people tend to look down their nose about people who write about sex and pleasure and the body. And that always reminds me that I am writing into a very powerful tradition. And if people look down on it, that is about them and not me. One of the other projects that I heard that you're working on is that you've done a podcast called Here to Slay, here as an H-E-A-R to slay. Yes. And I was wondering about what drew you to a project like that. Um, Podcasting, I think, is just like a whole nother thing. (laughs) And I'm wondering, you know, if you could just talk a little bit about it and what you have found in terms of doing a podcast and finding a podcast voice and all of this? I am late to the world of podcasting, but I had been thinking about it for a couple years and thinking, you know, maybe I would try this new medium. Well, it's not new, but new to me. And 
I was thinking about The Daily Show and what would it be like to have something that was like The Daily Show, but from a black feminist perspective and something that engaged with current events, had interesting people on and grounded black women in our lives uh, and centered rather black women in our lives. And I also knew given my current workload that I could not handle it alone. So I partnered with um, my friend, Trustee McMillan Cottom, who is an amazing scholar and a professor at the University of North Carolina, Charlotte. I mean, uh, excuse me, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. And, um, you know, we've come up with a really great show. There was certainly a learning curve. Uh, You know, I think it's not that we both thought podcasting was easy, but we did not realize just how complex the behind the scenes work of a podcast is. And so uh, now we're in our second season and it's been really great because now we have a a clearer sense of what we're doing and why. And uh, I'm really proud of uh, the episodes we've put together so far this year. Well, and then you've got a couple of other projects that I just wanna touch on before we have to say goodbye, which is you're gonna do a young adult novel. Is that right next? And it's gonna come out next year? It's coming out next year. (laughs) Is this your first YA novel? It is. It is. It's called The Year I Learned Everything. It is based on a short story of the same name. And uh, it's about a young woman and a significant year in her life where it's the final year of high school. And she's had a pretty rough life. Uh, She's biracial. She's living in a small town in Illinois. And she meets a, a young man who's in college and a freshman in college. And he's not conventionally attractive and kind of nerdy, but she ends up falling in love with him and realizing that she doesn't have to compromise herself and she doesn't have to only give her body to be loved and seen and accepted. And she becomes, you know, independent and strong um, and learning and learns how to stand on her own two feet as she prepares for the next stage of her life. And uh, it's been a really fun book to write. Yeah, we only have 30 seconds, but I was wondering what it was like to think about a novel that was geared towards you know a YA audience you know I don't didn't originally think of it as YA it was just I wrote this short story and then I realized that there's had room for a novel and so I just wrote what I want to wrote I just wrote what I want to write and publishing has placed the genre label on it but it's not arbitrary Uh, it is about young people and directed I think toward anyone who wants to read, but it it centers young adults and their concerns. And so it's been interesting to figure that out. Well, I so appreciate all the work that you do and all the experimentation that you do and all the things that you are willing to try. So thank you so much for coming on and talking about some of that with us, Roxanne Gay. Thank you so much for having me, Nina. And Roxanne Gay's new book is The Selected Works of Audre Lorde, where she edited and wrote an introduction and compiled this anthology of Audre Lorde's work. Thanks for our listeners for their questions and comments. To Ariana Prela for producing this segment. See you tomorrow. I'm Nina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Generosity Foundation, and the Bernard Osher Foundation, supporting higher education and the arts.